I'm Carrie Miller, and this week's Blast from the Past author interview is Sue Miller's Monogamy. We thought it was a nice fit with Katherine Schultz's upcoming memoir, Lost and Found. Miller's novel takes us inside a marriage between two very different people. But it's not until her husband dies that Annie really understands just who she was married to. My 2020 interview with Sue Miller contemplated how long marriages work, Miller's own biography, and her life as a writer. I hope you'll listen, and if you missed the novel, by all means, put it on your summer reading list. Here's Sue Miller. Good morning. I'm Carrie Miller. Nice to have you listening this morning. You don't hear many male novelists talking about publishing domestic dramas, but those are the wonderful stories that allow us to see ourselves within our families and within our most intimate lives. Novelist Sue Miller is an expert at those novels of family intimacy. And after six years away, she's out with a terrific new book titled Monogamy. Here's my conversation with Sue Miller. Does six years feel like a long time to have been away? It does, really. Um, I mean, I was working on the book most of that time, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to have been away that long. I just was, um, it was a book that was complicated to write, and I made a lot of false starts, and I think I probably wrote as much that I discarded as made it onto the page that anybody else will see. So it, it did take me a long time, and I... I was anxious about it to some degree, off and on, then not, then again, yes, then not, that sort of thing. You know, I think that's going to surprise uh, some listeners who read what you write and have followed your career and are big fans of yours that, with the experience that you have, um, that you still come into a place sometimes where you're not sure you're on, on the set path where you're writing, but that's not what's going to end up being in the novel. I think that might be surprising. Right, yeah. Um, it is, I mean, I, I always have felt this way that, I mean, some books have been relatively easy for me to write. I sort of knew from the start exactly, not exactly, obviously, but substantially how I wanted them to go and even some sense of the scenes I wanted to. And then others have just been much more a struggle to sort of figure out the right way to approach it, the right way to enter it. Um, and, and those ones have taken me longer, the ones that were the biggest struggle. I mean, there was, there, there have been one or two that I just, it just seemed to be there. I just wrote them easily, but I, I just feel you don't really learn from one book to the next in a certain way because each book is different. Um, and so different that, uh, the rules for each one are ones you're inventing as you go along, I think. So you're learning about this book, but nothing that's transferable or not a whole lot that's transferable to other books, to another book. So you always start off with those blank pages to fill. And uh, the sort of sense you have of how you're going to do it can be harder to achieve, harder to grasp somehow. That does make sense. But the other the other question, I guess, that comes to mind is, with all of your experience, are there, I don't want to say tricks, but are there methods that you can turn to to say, you know, when I found myself in this cul-de-sac last time, or I found myself discarding chunks of it, this is what brought me 
out of it. This, this is, you know, this is kind of how I wrote back into the light or whatever it is. I mean, do any of those methods apply when you find yourself in that situation again? Yeah, to some degree. I mean, I've, I mean, I, I you know, I've sort of talked about this elsewhere, but I just don't, I, when I feel I'm sort of blocked or doing doing things the wrong way, I just stop and make a lot of notes to myself. And that's in language that isn't going to be in the book. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I'm not concerned about language at all when I'm making those notes. They're just sort of notes to myself about how I could try this or I could try that. And sometimes I sort of start with a few paragraphs and 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 sometimes some of that ends up in it in the book revised substantially. But note making is my kind of way out and my way in also. And I and I, I I'm right in longhand for uh, the first draft of all of the books, but longhand with scenes that are close to the language that's going to end up in the book mingled with all of these notes to myself about what kind of person this is or what this person might be feeling in this particular scene, or just he says this, she says that, sort of the crux of some issue between two characters, for instance. Um, just a note for some dialogue that they'll eventually get to in whatever their conversation is. Um, so that that's very freeing to to um, do some writing that uh, you're not really responsible for the quality of the writing. It's just thinking on the page. So the novel is exploring how different members of a beloved member of a family who has died are grieving for him. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting about that is I think you're exploring how grief is different than many of us think it will be. And mm-hmm. I mean, I've experienced that myself. I, I wonder if you, when you were grieving for your father and for other lost members of a family, that you experienced something you expected or that it took a different form than you thought it would. Uh, well, the only one in my family whose grief uh, took a form that seemed like, oh, yes, this is what grief is, um, was when my grandmother, who was very, very old, died. And she had time to say goodbye to everybody. Um, and, and even, you know, she wasn't really coherent. But uh, And I'm not sure. When I went to see her as she was dying, I and I was terrified to go. It was the first time I would have been with anyone dying. Yeah. And I didn't know what I would say. <laughs> so, so self, you know, so, so, so much thinking about myself, <laughs> I guess. And... Um, in the end, that was not a concern at all. She was, she, I don't know that she knew me from any of my many, many cousins, um, but she said, oh, it's you. And then it was just this matter of being loving to her um, uh, and just talking a little bit and letting her talk in a kind of, um, she was just, she was close to death, so she wasn't really fully there in mm. a certain way, but she was. She, she, you know, her face changed and opened when she saw me, though, as I say, I'm not sure. It was specifically me. It was just a person who loved her and whom she felt love for in some way or another. And then when she died, I was I was sad. Of course, I was sad. But she she was 94 and she had a very long and loving life and was really the maternal figure in my life. But I felt um, just grateful that she that she'd been in my life. And um, I think someone very old who dies without 
prolonged illness or without something like what happened to my father, there isn't that same feeling of of just tormented grief. It's a kind of almost a joyous grief in a certain way. I mean, I, I wept, but I I was just filled with love for her. So that was that was what I sort of hoped would happen, <laughs> but, I, and I was so grateful it did that way. I mean, that element of gratitude, you've kind of put your finger on. I, I was, as I was reading the novel, I was asking myself whether there is some template of grief that we construct for ourselves because, you know, it shields us from being frightened of grieving. Mm. We, we say to ourselves, this is how it will be. And then in the experience of it, perhaps that gratitude is missing and it's a lot harder than we think. And it's and you feel ambivalent about however the person is dying. Um, yeah, that was certainly the case with my father. I mean, I just... It felt so bitter and wrong to me uh, that this that this person that you know whose whose brain was you know in all involved with memory and recall of historic things and also was like my grandmother very tender and loving should be so deformed by this disease it just was bitter beyond words to me and I think that was some of the reason I couldn't let go of it really um, the sort of information it contained in a certain way was so um, so embittering and also so terrifying in a certain sense too which my grandmother's death simply wasn't just wasn't at all so why terrifying um it, it was it was just so awful and i think then i mean it was something i was learning about death it is that it can be awful but it's not you have no control over it what how you will die the way in which you will die um who you will become if if something like Alzheimer's disease happens to you, the way you will behave. And my father was, he was not himself, as they say. And that was, that was awful. I mean, something that frightened me for a long time. I've sort of, I, I was still frightened of it, honestly, but I sort of see that it's hard to leave this, this earth and this world, no matter in what way you do, unless you leave it sort of the way my grandmother did, I think. Do you think and she seemed singularly unafraid? I have to say, also. Um, how old was your father when he w- was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, or when the family knew that he had Alzheimer's? Well, it was sort of ambiguous because <clears throat> my mother died very suddenly when he was uh, <clears throat> sixty-five, mm-hmm. and he and he and she was sort of this enormously expansive narcissistic person who just took up all the air in any room and um, just talked. I mean, my father was very quiet in situations where she was around. And and so after her death, he seemed, he seemed quiet and a little confused and certainly depressed. Um, and, And that's what we thought was going on for, for more than a year, just that he was moving in and out of this sort of stunned depression and then it just slowly became clearer and clearer, mostly to me, because I was living nearest to him, that something was really wrong with him. Um, and he was diagnosed about uh, seven or eight years before he died, uh, which is kind of typical, uh, as I understand it, uh, the length of time between diagnosis and death. So it was a long time, but for a long time, we we, we just sort of excused it, I think, in the way one does, But he because he was very depressed. 
by my mother's death, I think. So those two things kind of overlapped in some way, I think. His response to her death and then his, his also his response to the disease. But I think he had it when she was dying, even when she died. But um, he was having some trouble teaching then. Um, he was having some trouble. He was working on a book that he had a grant to work on, and it, he just couldn't make it happen. He couldn't write it, oh, uh, which is something I... so difficult. Wow. Oh, yeah, that was awful. And I actually used that. I used everything shamefully, but um, that's the way it is. I used that as a detail in a, <clears throat> in a novel about an old mother who's had some success as a writer in her, in her old age and uh, finds herself unable to write anymore fictionally. Um, she can't invent things. She's not, she just can't do it. And I have a scene in which she's trying to do it, which is, I think another case in which I was sort of writing about the thing that terrifies me the most, sort of, you know, the the loss of that ability to write. Um, But it was a, it was a sort of a wonderful scene to write because it was very dramatic and but it was also a terrible scene to write, which is probably some of the best scenes are both of those things put together. So. You know, when you started to describe that, you said, I use that. And then you said, shamefully. <laughs> well, I mean, really? Yeah. Or you, you believe that? Not really. I mean, I think it's a little sometimes embarrassing but I, I don't see how writers can't stay away from things which are um, tremendously emotionally interesting to them. You know, there's just no way to, to just say, oh, I can't do that. Not at all. But it can be, I think, it, it exposes you a little bit sometimes or exposes other people. Certainly I've never um, completely used another person in that way, I think. But I've certainly used little things that people events people have told me about or ways they talk or, you know, I've lifted things for sure from people along the way. Would you also say that one of the things that you employed in this novel was something that you wrote in your memoir about being the daughter of your father, how esteemed and well-liked he was as a church historian in the academic world, Mm -hmm. And you say in your memoir that he, quote, considered everyone equally, and quote, mm-hmm. that was a problem being a child of his. I've thought about that so many times since mm-hmm. I read your memoir. Um, that seeped into this story that you've told in this novel, didn't it? Um, well, I don't think so. I mean, it seemed to me that Graham... Graham did a better job of sort of personalizing his, um, he, he didn't have that same quality, I don't think. He's the he, character he in the novel. He a great deal from right. What? He's yeah. the character in the novel, uh, yeah. Yes, right, I'm sorry, I should have said. But um, he he um, is needy in a way that my father just wasn't. And so some of what he, but he's very intensely aware of the other person and the particular way to approach the other person and so mm. forth. And my father was just, just kind and good, and it seemed distributed a little bit too evenly for me sometimes as a kid, you know, to sort of realize that he brought the same sort of tender consideration of someone's concerns to most people he talked to. That's just the way he was. Um, but he had no particular need to be charming and to turn his, to 
turn his charm onto a particular person in in the, that particular way, which Graham does. He just knows how to. I guess that's right. Be with the person he's with completely because he he needs he needs him to love him so much. So is the is the dilemma with being the child of some of the way you describe your father considering everyone equally that mm-hmm. you aren't sure you hold a what a, a specialness in his consideration yeah, of course yeah that's nice that you you just sort of feel um how nice he is how kind and then you know how nice he is and how kind to everyone <laughs> although you know i did finally um as a more adult person realize the way that he treated me was different i mean he did make note of, of who I was in particular. Um, but they just had this even-handed way of moving through the world, um, attentively and courteously. Um, and then, you know, slowly as I sort of came to see him more as, an, as I became an adult, I, uh, I felt his, the particularity of his attention to me and to others, too, that he was not just <laughs> distributing himself evenly everywhere. Um, so... That's such a wonderful gift, though, to have as a as a person to make. Oh, yeah. I mean, everyone loved my father, but in this sort of quiet. <laughs> I mean, he was so shy and really and, and very gentle, uh, and didn't call attention to himself in any way. Um, and I think so. I think people had to know him to to feel that from him. Um, but uh, it, it was a great gift. For for him, I think he, he he cared about people enormously. Um. Since we've mentioned Graham, I th- I thought for our readers who haven't had a chance yet to read the novel that we could sketch out the plot a little bit. And okay. I mean, Graham is this kind of I guess I think of force of nature character at mm-hmm. at the center of the novel, and he's died. And what else can you say about what's happening in this? In this extended family as a result of that? Well, you know, I've sort of thought about it, um, and I've spoken of it elsewhere, too, as a sort of sociogram in a certain way, where you have a circle, mm-hmm. and you, you, you array your characters around the edge of the circle, and then you watch as one character starts something. And in this case, Graham starts it by dying, and how that affects this person across the circle from him in this case, let's say Annie, and how her response then affects this person over here and that person over there, and then their response, you know, comes across to someone else so that you get all of these intersecting lines of, you know, sort of call and response, essentially. And I think that's, that's what I'm tracing through in the book, more or less, is the, is the ways in which uh, people respond to this and and the ways in which their responses trigger responses from everybody else. So that there's a kind of interconnectedness, intimate interconnectedness among all of these people, and yet uh, and yet their responses are very separate and very unique and different. So the book really sort of, I sort of established the characters, Annie uh, and Graham, who've been married for uh, a long time. And they, um, uh, Graham has been married before, so has Annie. Graham had a child by his first marriage, and then, so there's, there's that child who's now a man, Lucas, and he's married, and has, so there's just the characters widen out. Importantly, Graham's first wife is still very much a friend of his, a dear friend, and she's sort of 
included in this family circle and is very important in it. Annie has accepted her as a friend, essentially. And then there's Sarah, who is um, Graham and Annie's child together. And she and Lucas are very much brother and sister, even though they're uh, half-brother and half-sister. So it's really um, the story, I think, once Graham dies, which happens about a third of the way through or so, um, he still sort of is alive in each of these, these characters' memories and their thoughts as I move around amongst them. So you get multiple versions of their way of grieving, yes. and you also get multiple memories uh, on, on, each, on each person's part and a sense of what his presence uh, in their lives has meant to, to them, uh, to all of them, in, in very different ways, obviously. Um, and then... What those ways, the ways of the, those, all of them grieving, um, sort of impact each other and are, are provoke, I mean, evoke some very great tensions between them, anxieties between them, and anger actually between them, among them. Um, so it's really sort of the aftermath of that, and then coming to know intimately all these other characters uh, through their reaction to Graham's death and then the, the way in which they move beyond it or don't, essentially, um, and what, what they sort of learn about him and about themselves uh, as they call up memories and as they uh, interact with each other. Well, it's a so perfect it's way to, yes, I, the concentric circles. No, that's that. wonderful. It's, it's perfect. And I, I this explains a bit in, as to why, you know, as I was reading your novel, I... I was thinking back to um, this conversation that I had with author Max Porter. I don't know if you ever read the novel "Grief Is a Th- Is the Thing with Feathers." Came out a few years ago. No, I didn't. No. He he's a British writer. He'd had this. Mm-hmm. He himself had had this terrible grief of losing a child before writing mm-hmm. the novel, and he said he wrestled and he saw the people in you know, the circle of the family who were all grieving the loss of this child in different ways. He he had mm-hmm. to recognize that everybody was going to do this in different ways and on different time timelines. And yeah. mm-hmm. he was constantly kind of resetting, you know, expectations about when it would all snap back to normal. I, I pulled a little bit from that interview, and I, I'd like you to listen mm-hmm. to this. This is Max Porter. So I think we have a kind of industry, you know, right from gift cards to some of the some of the residues of, you know, the religious way of thinking about things and those rituals that that, that is built around, you know, notions of moving on. And, the, and you know, the problem with those sorts of things for me is that they, they rely on, on a concept of normality, that it, it supposes that there is a normal state of being that you have to get back to. And I think that's a really flawed concept because we're all we're all broken you know we're all grieving societies and individuals are all getting over something it's a way of being and it doesn't exclude happiness i guess i kind of have a i was writing against the happiness industry you know the idea that you that you do your grieving you receive some cards some people come knock on your door and then you're done you you know you're, you're ready to carry on being normal i think that's a bit that's kind of preposterous what do you think of that <laughs> absolutely correct i mean i it's a wonderful way of putting it. I mean, the happiness industry, um, and I think it is—it becomes tedious to other people if you if you wallow in it too long or whatever you want the word to be. And people do um, do 
want you to get better, as Sarah says about her mother at one point in this novel, you know, she wants to make, she wants things to go, to go back to normal things. She wants to fix things. She doesn't want you to sit there and be sad. And she, Sarah distinguishes between her parents in that way. And this is her mother not uh, talking about a, a grief when she, when she, um, in particular, uh, as Sarah thinks of it. But she thinks of her father as being able to sit with you in your, in your sorrow and not need you just to be there for you. And she thinks of him as um, someone who understands that uh, some things are insoluble, that, are, that some pain is insoluble. And I think um, that is, you know, that is a problem with, with deep grieving that goes on and on. People do want you to, to stop. They want you to get back to, yes, normal, uh, to the way you were before, essentially. And, you know, grief is something that changes you, I think, um, which isn't to say that you can't ever be happy again. Of course you can. But I think you, you, you learn a great deal from grief as you, as you, if you if you are willing to welcome it in some ways into your life, I mean it's what Max Porter is saying. There is a new normal, and mm-hmm. that's to be expected. And it's a yeah. territory maybe that the people who are uh, around you saying snap back to normal. You know you've done this long enough. That's a territory maybe they haven't visited yet, so they don't know yeah. it. I see. Yeah. I think there's also this um, discussion of what's called complicated grief, Mm, uh, which means it goes on too long. (laughs) That's all it means, really. And I think that probably there can be some pathology in some of it sometimes, but I think all grief is complicated um, in some way or another, it seems to me. Um, And uh, the length of it is is not the only way that it's complicated. And I, 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 I sort of that way of... You know, the the stages of grief, the stages of loss, I mean, that just seems uh, inept in some way to me to to sort of say, this is what will work, this is what everybody works through. I don't, I just don't think that it works that way, Um, which was one of the interests I had in in looking at these quite individual people and their quite individual uh, responses to to this death. I'm Carrie Miller, and I'm having a conversation with uh, author Sue Miller about her new novel. It's called Monogamy. Uh, so I wondered if you'd read this excerpt um, where Graham has only been gone for a, a day or so, and his mm-hmm. good friend John, who has been invited to dinner before Graham dies suddenly, he doesn't know that he's died. And so he comes to the the front door of the house that Annie and Graham shared, uh, bearing wine and flowers. What else would you say about that scene before you read it? Um, I think it's uh, well. She's she's actually hears him on the porch, and you know the, that morning she has waked up with her husband dead in bed beside her, and she has this feeling that it's not real quite, and she hears John. Her, her husband's friend, uh, coming up the porch steps. And she thinks immediately that somehow this has just been like a, a dream she's had a bad, it just hasn't been real. And this is Graham. This is Graham coming, of course, the way he always does. He's coming up the stairs and he'll come into the house. And then she, the doorbell rings and she realizes it's 
it's not Graham. Obviously, he doesn't ring the doorbell. And then she goes to the door, and it's and it is John. And he knows from the moment she opens the door by the fact that there's nobody else there, and that she's not dressed for a party, and the house is quiet and so forth. That he that there's something up, and she tells him then that that uh, Graham has died. Uh, and so this is a, a a little bit past that. He, uh, John comes in. And she offers him some some wine, and he sits down with her where she's been having a sort of takeout meal that a friend has brought over for her. Um, and uh, he asks about what happened, you know, how did he die, that sort of thing, when. Uh, so this is the scene. She put a glass down in front of him, and as she poured wine into it, she said, last night, last night in his sleep, She noted with a kind of distant curiosity that her hand was shaking, her breath was still coming unevenly. She set the bottle down and sat, kitty corner from John, who was at the head of the table, in Graham's chair. His face was still a mixture of perplexity and shock. She told him a few of the details, aware of a sense of practice in this. She was getting numb to these words, these words that had been so unbearable to speak the first few times. It's just unbelievable, he said. He still hadn't touched his glass. Annie leaned forward and gently pushed it toward him. I'm sorry I didn't remember to let you know when I canceled the rest of them. What? He leaned forward, squinting at her. When I canceled the dinner party, I forgot you were coming, that Graham had asked you. He sat back and nodded. After a long moment, he said, God, we just had lunch. I know, Annie said. After a few seconds, she thought to say... I'm really glad you saw him. Yeah. His voice was still full of a kind of puzzlement. Then he looked sharply at her, as if really seeing her for the first time. Did he tell you about it? He did. Not much. He's always just so happy to see you. He's always so buoyant afterward. She shook her head. Listen to me, talking about him in the present tense. Well, of course. It's just impossible to think of him gone. She smiled at John as if you were more or less too alive to die. I suppose, John said. If only it were so, she said. And then because she didn't want to weep in front of John, she said, no, it's just not believable, is it? They sat quietly for a moment. I almost thought you were him when I heard you. John frowned, confused. Just now, coming onto the front porch, she clarified. Oh, he said, I'm sorry. No, no, I don't mean... It's just that I keep expecting him, I suppose. John nodded slowly. To walk in, he said. To walk in and start talking, she she laughed awkwardly. Yes, he said. He sipped the wine. They sat, not saying anything for a long moment. John looked over at her. He was happy, you said. He was. He really was. Hmm. He swallowed again. And you know, Annie said, he'd been a little distracted, I guess you'd say, recently, so I was pleased that he seemed back to normal. We had a lovely dinner, for which I have you to thank, I I suspect. Whatever it was you talked about, it did the proverbial trick. Novelist Sue Miller reading a scene from her latest novel, or new novel, Monogamy. Um, So... The scene between Graham and his old friend John that John references uh, in that conversation Mm -hmm. with Annie, it it happens just a short time before Graham dies. And 
I'm not going to go into the detail of what Graham has confided, but it's something that his old friend is disappointed about. And I felt like in that scene, you realize that Graham has been telling himself a very different story about who he is than the way his old friend sees him. And it and it mm-hmm. occurred to me that that's what happens in old friendships, isn't it? You're, your friends often see through, they've known you so long, they see through the the whatever the mythology is that you're telling yourself about who you are. It's the value and the risk of a, of a long friendship, I think. Right, right. And I think, you know, Graham both resists John's sort of interpretations right. of him during that conversation, and then also accedes to John in, in terms of the way John is thinking about him and his failures, his human failures. Um, he's a little defensive for part of the conversation, Graham is, and defending himself, but then he also really wants to talk to John about it as a weakness and to get help from John about it. So it, it sort of moves around their conversation together in the way of really deep old friends. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. I mean, it, it made me um, so think... He, you know, I travel with a with a college roommate, so we've been friends for a long time, and uh, yeah. I always get this sense that we're we're kind of resetting our stories of who we are with each other when we do that because we don't see each other all year, and then we spend these two yeah. or three weeks together. And boy, that is valuable. Yeah, I know. I think so. The mirror that that's held up to you, and then sort of the way you have to acknowledge what you see in the mirror right. and also uh, also you know also be yourself i mean uh, so yeah i think that is an interesting way to talk about it yeah i mean your your friend is going to love you no matter what but they're also going to see you no matter what <laughs> yeah. right in some we, ways you hope they love you no matter what yeah, yeah. but i think that is part of why they're your friend is that they do see you clearly you don't sort of pull the wool over their eyes, uh, and then they are also they also love you. Yeah, it sounds like you. Annie's a photographer. It sounds like you got some tutoring from a pretty accomplished photographer for the novel. Is, I is did. that right? And I have a wonderful photographer friend named Shelburne Thurber. You could look her up. <laughs> she has a website. Well, um, I did actually she, after I saw oh, that in good. the notes, and yeah. So did you go in as a complete novice or had you messed around a little bit with photography before before Not this? really. I, I you know, I've taken pictures, perfectly terrible pictures, although I have to say the uh the new phones make me seem like a much better photographer than I ever was before. But um I uh, you know, I'd always admired Shelburne's work and it and it has moved around um some, but she's been fairly consistent in what she's She's very interested in architecture and in empty spaces. I'll say mm-hmm. that. I mean, but she did have a lot. Also, has a lot of photographs of old friends and family and so forth on her uh, on her website and around her house and so forth. But um, she was really helpful to me. I mean, she just really sat and talked a lot about the way things felt and the way the world of photography worked. In uh, and some of which just wasn't relevant to the particular book I wrote, but. A lot of it was very important to me. And then I also read a number of um, sort of accounts and biographies of different photographers and looked, I, I went to a lot of 
photography shows over the years. I mean, it was six years ahead. Anytime yeah. something interesting came around to various galleries or to the Museum of Fine Arts here in Boston, I went and looked and saw and read all about Sally Mann's work and a lot about um, uh, Diane uh, Nemiroff, I want to call her, but that's her maiden name. Diane Arbus? Um, yeah, thanks. Um, and Nan Golden and, you know, Mapplethorpe and um, a sort of William Eggleston and just a whole bunch of people whose work I hadn't known very much about before, except Sally Mann. I'd always been interested in her work because she got into such trouble with it at a certain point. Um, and that was very fascinating to me. Um, the sort of the questions about to what degree she was exposing her own children seemed to me sort of a writerly issue. Oh, really? How so? (laughs) Well, the way you sort of use other people. Um, And she did. Um, Her argument was that they were, they were enjoying it with her. They were making the art with her. She, they knew they were being photographed. In other words, her children, but they were very young, young to give permission. And that whole question of permission is something I was interested also in, as I wrote about Annie, her sense of um, the sort of, and and Shelburne talked a little bit about it with me when we were talking together. Um, the sense of sort of you as a sort of performer of the of the photographer mm-hmm. when you're taking a picture that you're you're doing something um, active with the other person in a certain way. You're sort of presenting yourself in a certain way to that person uh, when you take a picture of them with their permission, in other words. Um, all of those things just seemed tremendously interesting to me um, and had some parallels uh, to writing for me, which made it doubly interesting, I think. You know, it, it kind of brings us back to what you were saying earlier about using your life and using that experience of your father's illness and then his death and what we talked about with you kind of dropping in that word shamefully, but then the expectation that it's your life and it forms who you are and, you know, your emotional world. And of course you're going to, you're going to use that. Mm. And, and I think that's, you just, you just do. I mean, you, it's just there. And, and when you're thinking about anything that has to do with the book you're working on, associations come to you and you sort of, think, is this worth pursuing <laughs> the way I thought about that, the way this happened to me, that kind of thing, or the way this happened to a friend of mine, or the way uh, you want someone to talk. I mean, all of it is stuff you lift from life, but none of it is in is autobiographical, because you're, you're doing something else with it, really. And um, photographers and experience that too, don't they? I think so, yeah, very much. I mean, Shelburne talked about it, you know, just the and I think that might have been in some way part of her uh, interest in the empty room and <laughs> the in the architecturally uh, sort of compelling spaces um, or and the way they're stuffed with personal things in some cases in the photographs she's taken. Um, very interesting stuff to me, her work. So I, I, knowing that I was going to interview you, I, I thought of you in a in a conversation that I had with a novelist about a month ago, um, and he described his own work as a domestic drama, and it mm. it struck me because I know that I was gratified to hear that, and we talked a little bit about it, but. Um, nice from a man. I know. <laughs> One thing. <laughs> and unusual. Yeah. Tell me tell me yeah. why that why that kind of 
sounds different to you? Well, I I don't think, even though I think there are tremendous numbers of men who write very much about the domestic scene, it's not usually the way they're described in a certain sense. Um, and uh, there's a kind of way of, I, I mean, I feel a little bit shoved into a corner and um, as, as sort of, I, there was one time about an article about me in the Times way back when, but it, the title of the article was, the doyen of domesticity. And I just went, ugh. <laughs> I just was so unpleasant, I thought. Um, but, you know, I, there's a wonderful quote from Henry James, and I wish I could remember it more, more, more accurately. But he, he, he's, and it's in his, um, in his collection, The Art of the Novel. He, he's talking about a, a critic who says, you, you, can't write, you can't have a novel, you can't have fiction without some adventure. And he says, why adventure? Why adventure any more than, uh, and he sort of lists these numbers of things, than marriage, or, um, or, and one of the things he lists is parturition, childbirth. Um, and I just thought, right on, Henry James. Why does that, you know, why do the serious novels have to have to be, you know, Conradian or, or um, you know, really about the, the state of the United States of America or, you know, various things that um, I think, are the are the reasons why male literature is discussed more as literature, which is not to say that all women write the way I do and write exclusively about domestic stuff. Nor do I feel that I'm writing exclusively about domestic stuff, but I do place myself within families usually yeah. um, as a writer. Um, I mean, but it, I feel as though I'm sorry. Is I was just going to say, isn't it this idea that if it's domestic, it's small? And it's less significant, which is the opposite. I mean, we doesn't most of the drama in our lives, isn't it connected in some ways to our families and the way we interact with our families and who we all become as we move beyond our families? That's not small. Not at all, I don't think. And I, I, I'm so grateful to, to James. There's also a wonderful, um, the, the writer Diane Johnson, who said, you know, we all know uh, we've been trained in school, even uh, how to understand um, the male metaphors. You know, the sailing voyage, the uh, the trip down the river on a raft. And she said the problem is that um, men mostly aren't trained to read. Well, women actually haven't been trained to to, to look at uh, the the work that sort of is is more domestic, the, the literature work that is more domestic, as also making making metaphors about life. They just don't understand the metaphor, as she says, of house or garden, or uh, and she lists a number of other things, um, which I think is really apt also. It's just harder for particularly male critics, I think, to, uh, to see work as sort of suggesting, to see work that's centered in the home or centered in the family as suggesting something about the wider world also, or the world of culture the family lives in or a lot of things like that. Um, and I, I have those things very much in mind often. Um, and it's always, it's always just, it's hard. It's, it's been difficult to always be seen as a doyen of domesticity. <laughs> Maybe I'd object as much to the word doyen. I don't know. But, certainly. <laughs> so, but it's interesting that uh, I think uh, 
there's a divide. I mean, I think, or there has been, it may be fading a bit, but the men's work is just seen as fundamentally being more serious. Even if it, as with Updike or someone like that, even it is, if it is almost entirely domestic in right. his case. So, um, yeah, so that's what I'm curious about, though. When you, when we started talking about this, you said, I've been put in kind of a box on mm-hmm. the, what, what's the, what's the result of that, would you say? Um, I just think uh, a sort of um, an un- unwillingness in some quarters to see my work finally as as deeply serious in some way or another. Um, so that's that is the way I feel, but I might be very wrong. <laughs> um, but that is I, I respond that way to uh, sort of that that kind of discussion of my work as being very very domestic, and I you know, there's no way to say that it's not. It is usually. But it's um, also but serious. Guess, yeah. And I think it also um, sort of talks a lot about a, a whole variety of various other issues uh, that, that the characters turn out. I mean, they're, they live in a culture. They live in a society. All of them do. And um, this may be a more domestic book than some others of mine. But I always am thinking of sort of the ways in which cultural rules impinge on characters and make decisions for them. Even, you know, there was a novel in which um, a very young woman uh, is sort of is taken advantage of by a man about 50. And uh, it was really sort of pushing against the notion that that was necessarily a terrible thing. And as a matter of fact, she survives that very well. And it, it also, when her uh, sort of disaster of her father finding out about it, mm-hmm. it's a very healing thing. Uh, her father has been sort of a foolish young man in some ways, and it's a very it, it changes him and makes him grow and makes him a better father to sort of have to intervene um, and see that she's um, she needs something that he hasn't been able to give her. So I'm just interested in the complexities of these various sorts of things that are usually seen one way. Um, you know, even a murderer I had in one of my novels, and I I gave him my best shot, <laughs> so that, you know he argues for himself. Way. And it isn't that I think murder is a great thing, but it was just it's just interesting to me the notion of a person who uh, who sees that as part of himself and then does something interesting with that uh, with that sense that he has um, and forgives himself. Uh, and but, none know, of this I, is sort of, I was writing that about the time that O.J. Simpson of the O.J. Simpson trial, which was compelling to me as they were to most Americans. Okay. I, I'm interested uh, here in, in the last minutes of our conversation about mm-hmm. whether you have been reading for comfort during the this uh, time of isolation during the pandemic, or you've been reading for adventure, you found yourself gravitating to familiar books or new books. What, what's How has your reading oh, okay, think, life... Um, I, I've been reading to be... I think to be taken into other worlds in some way. I'm, I'm always reading for, you know, amazing language and or just uh, a situation that just is very compelling. And then I've been reading some. I, I just haven't wanted to read very much political stuff. I have read a little bit, but I I just feel so swamped by it all the time, endlessly. Um, and I, you know, it's just there when you wake up in the morning. This sort of sense of great terror, actually, about the political situation 
we're in, which it seems to me uh, almost outweighs the pandemic situation that we're that we're facing too. Um, so more, I've been sort of reading some old things, some books that I just am very fond of and, and want to reread again, and then some terrific new things too. So, what would you would you tell us a couple of the books that you're very fond of that you've gone back to for solace? Um, well, there's a there's a book by an uh, an Australian writer named Helen Garner, who, and it's a very short, compressed novel, just brilliant in its. Um, in the in the compression, in the way in which she, you know, it's sort of the opposite from the way I write. She's just she's a very tight writer, and it's just beautiful, a sort of a family drama uh, that's ninety pages long, very thick and compelling. Um, and then I I I love to read Alice Munro. Mm. I love to read uh, Penelope Fitzgerald because she's uh, she's so funny and at the same time so deft and quick and uh so i've been re- rereading a lot of a lot of her stuff as well as monroe um and, and brian morton someone whose work i a contemporary writer whose work i really like and admire um so just a bunch of oldies but goodies i, I think um, in addition to some new things that i've been reading i thank you very much for the time and i look forward to our next conversation whatever that is thank you thank you so much 